0: Cannabis has long been surrounded by stigma and misconceptions remain. However, cannabis related companies have now listed and investors have exposure to the plant and its benefits. But do these companies have credibility? This year's Cannabis Europa London Forum, hopes to debunk some of the myths and some of the misconceptions. Well, to help me, I'm joined by Ed McDermott, founder of EMAC Life Sciences and chief executive of Seed Innovation. So Ed, let's get straight into it. Laws around the use of medical cannabis were changed as recently as 2018. But did it take the plight of epileptic children to have the government classify it as a lifesaver rather than a lifestyle drug?
1: I think it was definitely one of the core reasons, particularly in the UK. I think globally there's been lots of different uh, motivations as to why policymakers and regulators have looked at the rescheduling of cannabis as a medical alternative to more market authorised pharmaceutical drugs that we would typically expect doctors and specialists to prescribe for these quite complex conditions normally cannabis was seen as a end of the line drug so something that people would look at when all the other market authorised products you know that are pharmaceutically available on healthcare systems like the nhs Weren't working or the side effects were too poor. And I think certainly in the UK, the plight of these, you know, really unwell children predominantly, it was a narrative that everyone could get behind and it was something that the policymakers couldn't ignore. There were a lot of very experienced (laughs) lobbyists who effectively embraced that narrative and pushed it through media. And obviously, that social response led to a policy change here in the UK. So When you look at the US and and Canada, so North America in general, there were sort of slightly different motivations. Uh, In some cases, it was their troops. They have a much greater empathy towards their military personnel and things like PTSD. Cannabis had seemingly, at least anecdotally, been effective in helping to treat some of those conditions. And then, of course, you also had on the more recreational side, Parents were looking at their children, you know, 13-year-olds being able to access cannabis very easily uh, on the black market, whereas they couldn't walk into a off-license, for example, and access alcohol. So ultimately they believed that regulation would help kill off the black market. And of course, that narrative was sold to those more sort of mums and pups, I think is the best way to put it. And that was also a, a key motivator in the uh, rescheduling of cannabis for adult use in Canada for example so there's lots of different reasons why but absolutely here in the UK the plight of these epileptic children was really a key driver and that's what led to the policy change the access piece afterwards the framework is still in somewhat flux but we as the industry have managed to solve a lot of those problems I think.
0: It's interesting that you describe cannabis as a, an end of the line solution, because obviously the industry is not wanting it to be a treatment of last resort. So when we talk about cannabis and cannabinoid, you know, what's the difference?
1: Yeah, I think there's key differences. Obviously cannabis, I think, is more broadly the plant itself and cannabinoids are the specific molecules that are being taken from that plant. So cannabinoids if you like are the molecules in isolation and cannabis is the whole plant itself now of course it gets quite confusing because you have whole plant extracts you have isolated extracts and obviously that is something that investors need to sort of read up on and really get clued up on i suppose but for example you have cbd over-the-counter products which are non-psychoactive which are being talked about as cannabis companies it's a bit of a stretch, really. Really, they are ingredient companies. They're using specific molecules that are over-the-counter available. They do have some regulation around them, but it's very, very different to that of the psychoactive cannabinoids such as THC, which are prescription-oriented only. You can't access them, certainly in the UK and most of Europe, without a doctor's prescription. Obviously, in North America, in Canada, where it's adult use, you can access them through retail stores. And similarly, in the US, you can do the same, although it's still federally illegal in the US versus state legal. So there's a lot of nuance to it. But I think the key is there's a sort of global descheduling of cannabinoids in general. And this framework being put in place around the very prevalent cannabinoids, which typically are CBD and THC, that's what the market tends to be at the moment there is some move towards some of the other cannabinoids which are becoming more well understood such as cbg which in many cases is heralded as the better cousin of cbd i.e even more anti-inflammatory properties and lots of other potential benefits that research is starting to uncover but certainly at this point in time For investors, the two key cannabinoids that are most well understood are THC, the psychoactive compound, and CBD, which is non-psychoactive, but is believed to have a number of different effects and is clinically proven to have anti-inflammatory effects.
0: Okay, so CBG is a new one on me. So thanks very much for that, Ed. But let's deconstruct the industry because you talked about the ingredients makers. So what are the primary types of companies within the industry? So we've obviously got the ingredients makers, but um, who else is part of the supply chain?
1: There's a huge uh, and interesting supply chain within cannabis. Obviously, it starts with cultivation. So you have a number of different cultivation players. That's predominantly where the market started, you know, people who, who were able to license the growing of cannabis where it had typically been illegal in almost every country. Then you have the extraction companies, those people who are taking that whole plant and extracting the particular cannabinoids that they want to sell or are legally able to sell. Obviously, before all this, you have R&D. It depends where you look at it in the supply chain. I like to look at it pre-cultivation because that's kind of where everything starts. Then we move into the distribution side of the business, which is obviously in the case of over-the-counter products is retail outlets, pharmacies, Boots is a good example, uh, Holland and Barrett, so health and wellness stores. And then you get into the other elements of the cannabis industry, which also include things like textiles, oils for nutraceutical products. So, you know, it's quite a broad industry, but it starts with cultivation, extract, processing manufacturing and then distribution and R&D obviously around all that as well.
0: Okay so you you've got encyclopedic knowledge there now I hadn't considered the pre- Cultivation element, but let's talk about the IPOs. There was a flurry of cannabinoid-related IPOs late 2020 throughout this year. Was that due to a relaxation regulation because it was trendy, and these were opportunistic IPOs, or how were they percolating during the lockdown in 2020?
1: Well, there's, there's sort of two key reasons for these IPOs. One of them was the change. Certainly, here in the UK, in the UK, there had been Clarity from the FCA, who prior to that hadn't been clear on whether a cannabis or cannabinoid-oriented company could actually become a listed company here in the UK. So there were lots of things around the Proceeds of Crime Act, which effectively allows us to only do things that are that are legal here in the UK or could be legal here in the UK, shall we say. And the FCA clarified that it was okay for cannabis companies, cannabinoid companies as well, to list here in London on the main board stock exchange. And there were a number of companies that had been pressing on that door, shall we say, for a couple of years. The secondary piece to that, which really created the buzz around cannabis, and excuse the pun, was actually Biden-Harris. So the US elections with both Biden and Harris talking about federally legalizing cannabis in the US. And that led to What had been really quite a quiet sector in terms of money raised, it it had actually been quite hard work during the best part of 2020. Certainly for North American companies, you know, things were in a bit of a a rut, shall we say. And that led to a massive spate of money raising and massive appreciation in share prices in North America that had otherwise been a, a little bit beaten up. But that obviously opened the door and got investors here in Europe very excited about what was happening. And that led to, as you said, I wouldn't call it a spate. I would say there were sort of four or five cannabinoid-oriented companies. And before that, the only company that people had been able to sort of legally invest in here in the UK was actually Seed Innovations, the fund that we run. We were the first company listed on AIM to make an investment directly in the space. And that was uh, Nubera back in sort of 2017, 2018. So we've been involved in the space for a while. And it was just very interesting to start seeing all these investors getting very, very excited about companies, which in most cases were very early stage. Some of them were pre-revenue and they reached very lofty market caps quite quickly in some cases, you know, north of a hundred million for pre-revenue companies was quite, interesting shall we say probably I think it's fair to say they were very overvalued based on the fundamentals but it was very clear that investors were excited about the opportunity of cannabis it's something that we're all familiar with whether you walk down the street and you get a interesting smell that we all know from our in many cases from our youth is cannabis cannabis culture is alive and well it has been for a long time it's an interesting market You don't have to teach anyone how to use a product. It's not a novel product in that respect. It's just new from a regulatory standpoint. It's basically a prohibition market coming to legalisation, which I think is big. And everyone can see that opportunity. And that's why I think IPOs have been successful initially.
0: Okay, see the opportunity, smell the opportunity. Ed, I don't know what streets you walked walk down during your youth but you can you can speak I, I
1: live in Not- I live in Notting Hill it's uh it's very uh, multicultural Fra- it's, uh, it is very I, I remember when I first moved to Notting Hill I moved from Chelsea to Notting Hill Chelsea had become somewhat boring still a lovely place to be and Notting Hill I remember every day when I was getting back from work at the tube station almost daily I would walk up to the top of the stairs at the tube station and I would get that familiar aroma straight away and be like Uh, The cannabis culture is alive and well here in Notting Hill.
0: I wonder if that influenced your decision in 2018 to co-found EMAC or EMAC Life Sciences. What was its purpose on Inception, Ed, and what's its purpose now?
1: I think one of the points I didn't touch on, actually, was during the supply chain discussion that we just had a minute ago. Actually, there's quite a lot of companies that have gone down the vertically integrated path, which was every element of that supply chain and controlling that whole supply chain. North America is where we'd really seen that approach pioneered, I, su- I suppose, particularly in, with regards to cannabis. And we had spotted that there was a really big gap. No one in Europe was really doing it. And if they were, they weren't doing it in our minds particularly well. So we realized that we had the great ability to raise capital. We had the ability to access assets. We'd already been looking at assets indeed for a couple of years really up to that point. So Emac may have started in 2018, but the real genesis of the company actually probably started back in 2016, if I'm quite honest. And anyway, as I said, we were very fortunate to have the ability to access capital. We had a team of experienced people who had been involved in the legal cannabis industry already, both as investors and in some cases as operators. And we could see that obviously there wasn't a single market for cannabis in Europe at that point, but we felt that we could create one through licensing and regulation. And as the UK started to open up, it made sense that we were poised and ready to move. So we just saw an opportunity that no one was doing it well. We felt that capital was a critical part of that, being able to finance an operation that wanted to grow at light speed. And you know, within a year, we went from a few of us to well over 150 of us. So it was a really fast-moving thing, partly through acquisition. We obviously bought companies that had the capability to operate in the cannabis sector, but were actually operating already in the pharmaceutical area. So instead of paying silly multiples for something that had been designed to be a cannabis company, we were effectively overlaying our regulatory understanding and our skill set in cannabis on top of companies that already had a rich history and a successful history in the pharmaceutical space. That's what drew us to it and uh, it was a a great success. And and it's now owned by the largest cannabis company in the world, which is actually a a US multi-state operator in the adult space. So it's very interesting, different cultures colliding, but ultimately coming together to make a better business for all parties.
0: Now you're obviously keeping your eye on the sector, both private and publicly listed, because these companies are investment opportunities, but they're also your peers. So what are the challenges to this industry's growth? You mentioned access to capital there.
1: Access to capital is, I think, in any new space, it, often it's it's not always the best company that wins. It's often the company that's able to fund itself through the tough times, because with any startup, certainly in my experience, and so I'm Maybe I'm getting it wrong all these years, but I think there's challenges even in the most shiny, lovely-looking companies. I think behind the scenes, you'll find that they, you know, there's many sleepless nights, there's many things that people wake up worrying about at 3 a.m., and it's not always smooth sailing, despite what their PR might have you believe. So for us, looking at companies that have the ability to raise capital is critical. The problem we're seeing is, A lot of these people are quite inexperienced and they're still kind of stuck in the peak times of cannabis and they're coming at us with valuations that are just completely insane. It's a very difficult time, really, I think, in the space where we're kind of a bit like we were in early 2020, where sentiment towards the markets come off quite some. I think partly that's led by the US. The US led us into prohibition and it will be the, the territory that leads us all out of prohibition, to be honest. And until we see that big shift from the US, which ideally includes federal legalization, but also something called the uh, Safe Banking Act, which will allow cannabis companies to be properly banked. And there are more reasons for that just than sort of big business. There's also a, a social justice element there. You know, a lot of the people who have been involved in cannabis, both in its sort of, shall we say, grey market status and legal market status are ethnic minorities and a lot of them have been unfairly punished big jail sentences for really very minor offenses in the grand scheme of things so there are a whole different bunch of things that are at play now with the cannabis industry that are still give us great challenges but that also leads to great opportunity and i rather like markets like this where sentiment is down and That's where you really see who are these companies that are actually going to survive the tough times, because it's no good billing yourself as the next big thing if you can't survive three, six, nine months of poor sentiment towards something. Ultimately, if we look at the global opportunity for cannabis, it will happen. It's a question of of when, not if. And I think you'll see some very surprising countries start to uh, reschedule cannabis and at least look at it seriously, particularly in light of. Uh, This pandemic that we've had. But ultimately, we are to some degree at the mercy of policymakers and regulators. So that is probably the biggest challenge. It's positioning your business to make sure that A, you've made the right decisions in light of what kind of regulatory and policy changes will come, but also making sure that you've capitalized the business and that you're ready to move very, very quickly and that you also behave. For example, if you're a medical cannabis company, you've got to behave like a pharmaceutical company. You can't take shortcuts. You're dealing with medicine, ultimately. And you you have to have that very, very laser focused view. We're a medical company. Therefore, everything we do must be in a medical format. Okay, we are company B is positioning itself more as a brand based company looking at cannabinoid wellness. So over the counter products, they don't have the capital to. Play in the medical market, and maybe their skill set is more geared towards brands in FMCG. You know, there's different horses for courses, but I think we all have challenges across the whole sector. But one point I always found really interesting is when you look at something like coffee coffee is a psychoactive product. So, you know, it has a psychoactive effect in the same way that cannabis has a psychoactive effect. Different effects come from the same product, but when you look at coffee, I think nearly 65% of Americans, for example, have, have a coffee every single day. Of that 65%, we can make assumptions that, you know, even if only 20% or 50% buy a coffee from a Starbucks or a coffee shop rather than just have it at home. Cannabis in many countries is up to 30% of the population of, you know, multi-million population countries, You get a sense of the scale of the opportunity here. It's very, very, very big indeed, and it crosses lots of different areas. It's not just recreational. It's not just over-the-counter. It's not just medical. It's not just textiles and other products that help build houses, for example. It's a real challenger in a lot of different areas. And one thing that really caught my eye and continues to, every time we feel a little bit Should we say, down in the dumps about the industry because the sentiment isn't as strong as it has been. I just look at some of the videos of people in these dispensaries out in the US and also Canada. And then you look at the off-licenses, for example, and there's basically tumbleweed floating through the off-license, the odd customer coming in. In these dispensaries, they are printing cash. There are so many customers in there, all sorts of different demographics, and it's just alive. So it really gives you a kind of i suppose a portal into the future of what some of europe will look like over the next you know two five ten years but certainly in the not too distant future you're going to see that kind of thing here in europe i believe
0: okay well hopefully the won't the queues won't be too long ed but you talked twice there about sentiment being down so sentiment being down and you as chief executive of seed innovations is looking at the survivors the survival of the fittest so Who does seed invest in and and why? What metrics do you use? Do you use social justice metrics, for example?
1: Um, That, I wouldn't say, is necessarily a metric that we use at this point. I mean, clearly, there are the sort of more traditional metrics such as revenue, EBITDA, but also we look at obviously the market size and the ability of the management teams that, that come across our desk. But we also obviously look at the ability of how much, how much of that market share can those particular individuals with their strategy and their assets, their licenses uh, move to. We're sort of moving away from cultivation plays because ultimately, my belief is that cultivation businesses will, in due course, become very, very large agri-players. And there would be very, very specific skill set to do that. Early doors, we look very much at vertically integrated plays because it gave the sense of comfort that the companies were at least able to control every element of their supply chain as well as possible and therefore drive decent products with a nice margin attached to them. There's lots of different metrics to what we use, but number one, when someone walks through your door and you've seen their investment deck and it looks sensible and they've made sensible assumptions number one we look at valuation to be quite honest because if the valuation is bonkers well we're not prepared to pay silly money for a company that doesn't make any sense uh you know it doesn't matter how good the business is we just won't do it so people come to us because they want venture capital They want not just our money, but they also want our expertise, our ability to help them get an exit at some point in time and also bring customers into the business and all manner of different things. So the guy who's paying £20,000 in as an EIS investment personally should be in our mind treated differently to a venture fund that's got a lot of experience behind it. And two of our assets have sold for a combined value of over a billion dollars, which makes us one of the most successful funds I think certainly in Europe but potentially even further afield so we clearly know what we're looking at and right now a lot of it comes down to are they the kind of credible management team that will be able to continue to support and raise money for their business when times are tough because that is you can invest in the hottest most wonderful thing but if they can't fuel the business properly then it could be game over very very quickly.
0: Let me just talk to you about the metric that's very trendy at the moment which is ESG. Now given that cannabis has traditionally been consumed by smoking it it raises questions over ESG. Also growing indoors requiring control of ambient temperature and irrigation it consumes a significant amount of energy and water despite advances made in the use of renewables. So the ESG metric must be quite kind of tough to find or apply under those circumstances I've just outlined?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of different methods and it's something that the industry has had to catch up with quite quickly. Obviously, ESG in its general form has been around for quite a few years. It's something that we've all had to become much more aware of, but certainly the cannabis industry initially, because it all happened so very quickly in terms of capital was formed and it went to work very, very quickly building these monstrous greenhouses uh, in, to be honest, not the best climates for growing a a product that likes sunlight, air, and the right kind of humidity. So you're, you're absolutely right, but there have been some nice innovation pieces that have come out of it along the way. There's obviously a lot of outdoor growing, for example, which is not a bad thing at all. Obviously, there's benefits to the environment for growing crops outdoors. In terms of water, it's not a product that requires crazy amounts of water, unlike other crops. So it is a consideration, but I don't think it's necessarily a poor agriculture crop. Hemp, for example, grows in all sorts of conditions and is quite a robust plant, to be honest. So it's, it's quite a good one. Obviously, from the biomass that isn't used, for example, post extraction of the cannabinoids that you want, companies are making rope and textiles and bricks even. And obviously, then you lead on to fuels, for example. Back in the day, Henry Ford, uh, with his Ford Motor Company, was looking at hemp as a real fuel alternative. And one of the reasons that it got, allegedly anyway, well, I think it's more than allegedly, actually. But if you read back into the story, there were a lot of very, very rich petroleum companies that didn't want this to happen. They didn't want hemp to be a viable alternative because it was actually somewhat easier and would obviously take a lot of power away from the oil industry so that in many ways is why it was campaigned apparently to make it illegal in the first place so there's a lot of very very good products that can come from it and obviously from a health perspective you mentioned smoking well a lot of the products that have been developed are around vaporizing technology which has proven to be a lot less harmful I mean it's still not perfect, but it's, it's certainly a much better way to inhale cannabinoids. And also from a certain medical conditions, for example, if you have fibromyalgia, for example, which brings on very, very aggressive, or can do anyway, bring on very, very painful episodes. Inhaling is the best way to get those cannabinoids into your body in order for it to have an effect quickly. If you take an ingestible product, such as a cannabis-rich oil, That can take a lot longer for that product to actually take effect, uh, because obviously it's got to go through your system and through your liver. You know, there are many, many companies looking at the way that cannabis is ingested, the way that it is dosed. And I think that all plays into that, certainly the social and the governance piece. Uh, Environmental, I think every company in, in the world, to some degree, probably has work to do on their environmental footprint. And cannabis is definitely something that needs to embrace that. I think it is. But again, right now, a lot of the big challenges is for some of these companies is is just staying alive, quite honestly, which seems bonkers, really, when you look at the market opportunity here. But again, not all companies are created equally. Not all management teams are as capable as one another. And also not all assets are good. There's lots of people who've been very, somewhat fortuitous to to sort of jump on the bandwagon because they heard the cannabis was good. By the time they were up and going and ready, ready to do something, they were way behind the curve, you know, but they'd taken investment from uncle Bob and, you know, auntie Sammy. And and before you know it, those guys are are, are not going so well, you know, as with any industry, there's bedroom operators all the way through to people with massive facilities and uh, bags of scientists under them. So
0: Let's talk about the market opportunity. Just a couple more questions, Ed. In terms of the market opportunity, many people familiar with this space are calling this a generational investment opportunity, comparing it to investing in alcohol stocks at the end of prohibition in the U.S. So do you see cannabis, cannabinoid related investments, long term investments, or is this a bubble or are we beholden to regulation?
1: Uh, I think. You know, you could probably argue in favor of pretty much every piece you've just mentioned there. I don't believe it is a bubble. I think there will be times where the industry bubbles up and becomes sort of overvalued. But that happens, I think, with any new industry. If you look back at the sort of tech dot-com boom, well, it's created the biggest companies in the world. It's created the richest human beings in the world. And I think cannabis has the capability to do something very similar to that. You know, there's no real household name cannabis brand globally right now you know coca-cola everyone knows coca-cola the little tiny island that doesn't have tvs out in the pacific knows coca-cola so there are a huge amount of, of years to go before this industry reaches anywhere near its potential it's still very embryonic you know we've already been going a couple of years i think if one were to cast their eye back on The alcohol companies in their first few years of trading as legal entities post-prohibition, they probably were moving even slower than cannabis companies are, partially because of social media, because of our understanding of how to market products, because of the amount of people that you can reach. But, you know, it'll take some years before you start seeing major, major brands that everyone knows, but that will happen. Uh, I think regulation is key. You know, the more regulatory change we see, the more policy changing that we see, the better, quite frankly. But it's going to take time. You know, there is still stigma around this product in the same way that there was still stigma around alcohol when it came out of prohibition. So there's a a bit of time to have here, but that's great for companies that are, you know, really entrenched in it, really understand it and also have the capability and skill sets that they can bring from other markets that have parallels with cannabis, at least in part, for example, taking people from the alcohol industry, taking people from, you know, FMCG, all all that sort of stuff is going to help. And of course, on the medical front, I think what we're going to arrive at is a quasi-recreational state with medical where you have a, a small portion of the patients that are accessing cannabis through prescription that have really, really very severe problems. You know, multiple illnesses, multiple comorbidities, for example, and then you have people with somewhat more manageable conditions, but they have just found that cannabis, probably initially accessing it illegally, has been very effective at treating whatever their problem is. And again, if we go back to these uh, epileptic children, for example, the market authorised products that they were taking, the pharmaceutical products. Yes, it may have reduced their seizures. And again, in some cases, I'm sure it's been transformational, but let's talk about the people that that have said this doesn't work for us and we're accessing cannabis now. Many of us have seen videos and we've met the children of of these parents who, back when they were on a heavy raft of pharmaceutical drugs, yes, they basically just lay in bed all day and, okay, they didn't have that many seizures or maybe they still had quite a few seizures, but they weren't living a life. And that's, I think, the key difference between the experiences that they've had with cannabis versus the market-authorized heavy pharmaceutical drugs. Now they're seizure-free, in many cases, living a life, smiling, running around, moving, being part of life. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it. And I think that's what has inspired a lot of people. And similarly with adults as well. I know lots of adults, and I've met lots of adults over the years, who you know say cannabis has transformed their life and these people are doctors lawyers that I think there's some horrible stigma attached that you know it's it's the person on benefits the person who doesn't work the lazy person who takes cannabis It, it couldn't be further from the truth it is something that is utilized by so many different demographics it's a shame that many people can't talk about it because of the stigma but ultimately it's a product that helps so many people and You know, if you look back at America and Canada, for example, those people who are patients don't now need to go and spend lots of money on doctors. They can just go into a shop and find the product that works for them, which arguably isn't the most scientific way to take products, but at least you're dealing with something that's a more natural product. People don't die from cannabis. Yes, there's people that have had issues with it, young minds, people who have been susceptible to psychosis, for example, but that. The same is true of alcohol, the same is true of lots of different products. So at least when you have a product that's regulated, that's generating income, that's generating tax, that's generating jobs, that's when you're then in a position that you can help the people who do have problems with it. And that's, again, a social piece of this argument for rescheduling cannabis globally that I think is really important. You know, there's lots of people who are still sitting in jail for having a bag of weed it's completely stupid. It's a waste of taxpayers' money, that war on particularly cannabis that's put aside the much more hardcore drugs, your heroines, cocaines, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly in the case of cannabis, the punishment doesn't fit the crime as I see it. And I think it's something that big companies like CureLeaf that acquired Emac are very, very hot on. The social justice piece is such a critical part of their business. And it's also a part of how they're going to drive change and legislation
0: Ed, finally you talked a little bit about uh, stigma there social justice now we've, we're just coming out of COP26 the United Nations climate change forum it's raised lots of awareness what do you hope will be the outcome of cannabis Europa London which is being held just a week after COP26
1: well I think it's obviously going to be, given that it's so current and in the news right now i think you're going to see obviously mentioned quite frequently uh you know i hope that we come away from it with a sort of renewed sense of vigor around the cannabis market people recenter themselves in why they're doing what they're doing what is the motivation what are the goals how can we do it better how can we be a shining example of how industries should be run i think that's what i hope to see from it i hope that sort of greed and Let's only focus on money. Obviously, I'm a fund. I come at this from an investor perspective, but it's still critical that we look at this as why are we doing what we're doing? How are we going to do it better? And how are we going to deliver better outcomes across the board? You know, how are we going to prove to policymakers, regulators and the the public that this is something that needs to change uh, in order to make for a better world? You know, we've got really big problems out there largely caused through this pandemic but before the pandemic there were huge problems already environmentally socially and the way that we as humans conduct ourselves so you know I hope we see a lot of that my other interest to be quite honest is is very much in cell agriculture as well so I like clean medicine clean uh, health products I like clean energy and I really also like the idea of clean food Those are the kind of three topics that me as an individual are looking at. Obviously, cannabis creates a major pillar of that. But my other real great interest at the moment is is around cell agriculture, because I think it also potentially could have ramifications for the cannabis industry in terms of how we deal with crops, how we deal with the agriculture piece, and make sure that that is done in a way that is as environmentally friendly as it possibly can be
0: to be discussed in another webinar, Ed. Thank you very much. You've left us a real cliffhanger there. Well, I'm gonna go off and um, research CBG, which I didn't know about until you've educated me, but thank you That's very much. Thank very
1: you.
0: Ed McDermott, founder of EMAC Life Sciences and chief executive of Seed Innovations. Thank you so much. Thank you.